Right. Joshua 6. Um, so they have crossed the Jordan. They've gone through uh, the circumcision of, uh, of the males. They, um, uh, they, they've set up um, to be in position as they approach Jericho to take it over. This was the first military campaign. It was the first excursion uh, where they would have to deal with uh, the inhabitants of the land uh, in, in the conquest of, the, of Canaan, of taking uh, uh, ownership of the promised land that had been promised to them a long time earlier. And so as they are approaching Jericho, uh, we pick up chapter 6. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Um, the fear of God had absolutely paralyzed the people that were inhabiting the promised land. Uh, we, we saw uh, a while back that when they heard what God had done, they were paralyzed over and over and over and uh, and, and so that, that's what's happened in Jericho. They, they, they closed up the city so no one could um, go out and no one could come in. Back in these days with the city surrounded by walls and gates, when there was an enemy army uh, going to besiege a city, they would close up the gates, but they would oftentimes let little parties out either to harass or try to intimidate or to spy on the army that was out there. Um, knowing that if the gates were open at some point, spies could come in to the city and start uh, subterfuge within the city. And it was just a part of the natural course of how they uh, engaged in warfare. They were so terrified that they closed up the city, didn't let anybody in or didn't let anybody out. So no resources could come in. They were so petrified. We can't let any resources come in. And we're so petrified, we can't let anybody go out. Uh, primarily because, because they're afraid of deserters. Everybody was scared to death of what, of what God had done and what God was going to do, the God of the Israelites, that they knew if they let people go out, they wouldn't go out on the city's behalf. They would go out and, and affect. And so, in essence, they would lose their ability whatever ability they had to fight, that people would leave. So they just, they closed everything down. They shut it down. Um, and it's a result of God's, God's fame spreading, him hearing about what God could do and thinking, okay, we're not on the side of the Israelites' God. We're on the other side. And what that means has not gone well for people being on the other side of God. Mm-hmm. You'd think that they might say, hey, how do we join your side, yeah. <laughs> Right? Uh, verse 2, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Um, th- that w- the significance of verse 2 is profound. He doesn't say, I'm giving Jericho into your hands, right? He doesn't say, go and fight them, because... It's going to go. What does he say? I have delivered. In English, that's a past perfect tense, which means it's it's a it's a it's a thing that's happened in the past and it's completed. I've already done it. When we talk about um, um, plans, we talk about future plans and the hope that it comes to fruition. God doesn't talk in those terms. God talks in completed action. And he says, I've already given them to you. It's a done fact. Um, it's significant for that reason because God says, look, you just need to believe that this is already a done deal. And that's the confidence you need to hear what I have to say. And it's the confidence you need to follow what I have to say. If we don't believe that God has already completed the act, We'll listen with ears um, of doubt or suspicion. But if we're convinced that God has already completed the act, we listen with ears of triumph. Mm -hmm. 
with ears of expectation. Does that make sense? If, if, if we don't understand the language that God uses, the tense in which God speaks, we'll go into walled cities with hope and with doubt. And what God is saying is you don't have to have hope and doubt. You, you got confidence. It's already done. The significance about it being already done is because of this city Jericho was. Jericho was known for it. It's in the old, the old song. Josh fought the battle at Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Anybody remember that song from the old days? Yeah. Josh fought the battle at Jericho and the... So the, the significance about I've already done it is not just that God had already done it, but that he had already done it to a city like Jericho. Why? Because of the wall. Huge fortified fortress. They had not ever had the conquest of a walled city. The last time they uh, had the opportunity to examine a walled city, we know what happened. The 12 spies went and examined a walled city. What was their response? They're giants. They're huge. Fear. They can't do it. Numbers 13, 28. Uh, Numbers 13 and 28. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. They... They saw a city with great walls that were fortified, and it scared them to death. And because of that, they disobeyed God. They did not believe that God had already accomplished the fact. And so that led to their doubt, fear, and disobedience. Fear always leads to disobedience, if you're not careful. Uh, And so God said, fine, if that's where you are and that's how you feel about what I've said, y'all can die in the desert. (laughs) And now he gives a new generation the chance to walk up on a fortified city. Um, Originally, it made them scared uh, and disobedient. This time, this time would be different. They'd still see the wall. They'd still see the fortifications. But this time, they're going to believe. It says, when you go... I've already delivered it into your hands along with the king and its fighting men. March around the city, verse 3, once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have the priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. And the people will go up, every man straight in. Uh, so as a military strategy, not real sound. <laughs> Especially because they're not supposed to make a sound. <laughs> other than a little trumpet playing. It's like Mardi Gras. It's, you know, without the, without the it, it's just the horns, you know. It, just everybody in the parade walking around. Not a great military strategy um, because God was doing something different. March around the city once with all the armed men. So the fact that there's armed men, and the armed men will be before and after, at the front and at the tail. The fact that there's armed men indicates that there is the expectation of a battle. That they're going to have to fight. But God says, first, for six, just walk around it and don't say anything. See, God was doing something. Go to Hebrews 11.30. This story was a big deal. And they told it for generations. You should still be telling it. Hebrews 11.30. By faith... The walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. After the people had been obedient. After they followed instructions that didn't make sense to them up front. After God said, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. And y'all are going to be the first ones to experience it. After they walked around it for seven days. See, what God was doing was not just a military excursion. What God was doing was holding a worship service. Here's how we know. Priests carry trumpets or ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, marching on the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. So what we have here, one is this idea of the number seven. Seven, back in the day, I always heard seven was God's number. Seven is not God's number. Seven is the number of completion. It's completed. Seven days of creation. It was completed on this. The seventh day was a celebration of the completion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the number seven on the seventh day, march around seven times. Like this is God's act of completion of his word, what he said he, he had already done. You have the priests. Priests don't go into battle. Priests don't go into, warriors go into battle, not priests. Um, blowing the trumpets. These were not military trumpets. These were ceremonial trumpets of ram's horns. And they, and they were playing. They, they would sound the one long blast. That, that was the command to go in. But this was different. The, the seven days, these were, these were ceremonial blasts from ram. What was happening here is this was all an act of worship. Primarily before it was ever a military campaign. And God was saying, look, I, you, I need you to put yourselves in a position to trust that I've already done what you need done. And I need you to act in a way that is worshiping me and not relying on your own strategy and your own strength. Because this was not a strategic. Mm-hmm. How long were you in the military? Eight years, five months, seven days. <laughs> That's a military man. That is a military man. Everyone always asks me that, so I looked it up, but I remember. <laughs> That's a military man. Um, I don't think that in any military college or boot camp or, or, or training for battle, um, the, the, the military way of doing things is, you know what? Let's just get a trumpet and stand out in front of the enemy and just pray, play Reveille. That's not usually what's taught, right? right. I, I, you were in the, in the Army, right? Air Force. Air Force, sorry, yeah. It was just, did they ever give you a trumpet and said, hey, good luck, little soldier? That's not what's done. Uh, and so God was saying, look, this, is gonna, this has already gone down as far as I'm concerned. But it's not going to go down by the way you think it's going to go down. The walls are going to come down because I'm getting involved and you're worshiping me. So now keep your mouth shut and just follow my lead. Right? Hang on to that because we're going to come back to that. So Joshua, son of Nun, called, verse 6, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. All, all an act and aspect of worship. And he ordered the people, advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, I, I need to, I just had a thought. I don't know. Maybe there is. This could be a, a research question. I don't know of another battle where the ark led into battle. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think through uh, the, the Rolodex of my mind where the ark led yeah. in battle. I, I don't know of another one. Um, I, know, I know that a different, in different scenarios, the, the ark may have been involved, but it didn't lead. And so God is saying, look, I, like, I, I, I'm the preeminent one here. I'm not important. I'm preeminent. I need to lead this thing. Um, and here are the people advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. 
Verse 8, when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the, Lord, uh, of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. Now, here's the thing. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Um, <laughs> I want you all to go circle the city. We're going to take it over, but don't talk to each other while we do it. Why do you think he may have said don't talk to each other? Yeah, I, Brenda, I think you're right. So, so they won't start bad-mouthing the plan to each other, right? I mean, just imagine for a moment. Like you're in that line. And you, you, you see this huge sit, walled city with army an army inside. And you start saying, okay, wait, wait, wait. Pastor wants us to what? Walk around it? And not, now obviously, at this, they're circling, they're far enough away where the archers can't shoot them. So we're not even that terribly close and we're just we're going for a walk. Like, what's the point of it? Can you imagine the conversations that could have been had and the grumbling and complaining? What kept, what kept a generation out of the promised land? Grumbling and complaining. (laughs) And Joshua's a smart cat, man. He's like, look, I'm not even going to give you the opportunity to keep us out of this thing. God said it's done. Now keep your mouth shut. I don't care what you think about it. I don't want to know what you think about it. Your opinion doesn't matter. And just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you have the right to share your opinion. I have said that for years and people think I'm so mean and it's so biblical. <laughs> like, I, I don't care. Joshua, just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Perhaps that's one of the reasons God said, Look, don't, don't let them say anything. Just don't let them talk. Until I say so, and then y'all better shout. So we had the ark of the Lord uh, going around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp, spent the night there. Now, it's very likely this is how that went down. Jericho was a city that was containing about uh, five or six, five or six. Five or six mile radius, like it wasn't real big. It, it was, it was, it was a pretty small. So uh, I was going to ask that about. So yeah, okay, that gives us an idea. I'm sorry, not miles, acres. Yeah, okay. acres. Yeah, not so, miles, acres. I was thinking ranchos, not ranchos, acres. So around Jericho, where they were marching, we don't. It was, it was pretty like, small. A couple okay. football fields, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty small. Two lots. <clears throat> Yeah, small. <laughs> two and a half acres. Two and a half acres. It, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. A, it, it, we're not talking Los Angeles. Yeah. Wow. Now, a lot of pe- inhabitants because the wall was ginormous, and mm. there were people living in the wall as well as in the city. But I'm saying it wasn't. It wasn't that grand of a city. Yeah. Five mm-hmm. to six acres or so. So likely, how this happened, we're not told. Did they march two by two? Five. Across, we don't know, but in all likelihood, when the soldiers leading the ark left camp and walked and circled Jericho, by the time they got back, the last group was still hadn't left yet. Mm -hmm. Do do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There were there there were a lot of people involved in this, and it's likely that this long procession leaves the camp. And circles Jericho, and they're passing each other as they, mm-hmm. as they go. 
Another reason why Josh was like, just don't, don't talk. Like the ones who are on the journey, young in their faith, don't need to get the gripes of those who are old in their faith. Like the ones who have seen what's ahead and might be a little fearful, don't need to share their fear with the ones who haven't been there yet. Right? Because both faith and fear are contagious. So just keep your mouth shut. Let everybody do their stuff with God. And then, so that's probably how this thing went down for six straight days. Verse 12, Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So we just, we like, we understand what's happening there. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. Here's one thing that we have to really understand. Um, What's required in following God is consistent obedience. Consistency. Now, I'm sure the first day they're like, oh, let's see how this goes down. This is going to be weird, man. I'm like, what do you think it's going to look like? And then the second day they get up and like, ah, I guess we're going to walk around it again. The third day they get up and like, really, three days? And the fourth day, it's like, I think I can skip this one. Like someone, they're not even going to know if I'm not there. Fifth day, I, I don't, I mean, I got stuff to do now. I mean, you know, and got no more man. I guess I got to go pick some berries. And sixth day, what? this is ridiculous. Um, it's easy to grow weary quickly. It's like Galatians says, Galatians, uh, you know, don't, don't grow weary in doing good, but in due season, you're going to reap a good harvest. Uh, consistency is a big deal. But I think there's also something going on with the six days of nothing. Because when you see an army approaching, everybody's on high alert, right? Mm-hmm. You better believe. Army was in the walls, people at the, the, the towers, they were ready to let stuff fly. If they get any close, you know, we see the whites of their eyes type thing. Mm-hmm. And they march around for a day and all they're doing is blowing horns and then they just go back to camp. <laughs> Guys are idiots. Yeah, they probably stood on the wall going. Day two, day two, they might be ready again because they can't do it two days in a row. Day two, they're still ready. No, nope, going back. But these guys are, these guys got nothing. They don't have, whatever. Day three, you know what? They're in the city thinking, I got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. I haven't been to work in two days. Yeah, I got day, day three, four, five. There's nothing coming in, nothing going out. This is, this is like, it could have been that God was also pretty militarily strategic as well. And God says, we're going to lull them into thinking, maybe God did it then, but he's not doing it now. We're, I'm going to lull them. Because humanity's tendency, when they don't see God do something right away, they assume he's not doing nothing. Right? So we got to be real careful. we got to be real careful. So I think those are two reasons maybe why God had them circle so much without doing nothing. But there's a third reason. I think the third reason, it could be, that God was giving them plenty of time to repent. I think it could be that God was letting them see. Look at what's about to befall you. And you know who I am. You've heard my story. You better repent. And gave them six days and then a seventh prolonged experience. All they had to do is exactly what Rahab did. I've heard the story of your God. And I'm scared to death that I'm going to be one of those. I want to be on your side. Isn't that what happened to Nineveh? Jonah shows up, didn't even want to be there. He showed up and he didn't even get any of the spoils of the whole thing. He just showed up. And the shortest 
message ever preached. Repent, you're going to die. <laughs> and that whole, the entire city, led by the king, repented, wore sackcloth, and God spared them. Now, the story of Nineveh later is that they all rejected God and God <laughs> did them in anyway, but, but at least for that generation. Like, I, part of this is perhaps God was saying, I'm going to give you seven days. You got plenty of time, plenty of opportunity. And if you don't, it's on your head. Doesn't that sound like God? Mm-hmm. Just think about it. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. So imagine this line could be so big that when it leaves the camp, when they circle the first six days, they go back and they, you know, they, the, the front of the, of, the, of the line gets back to the camp before the last goes. So if they, if they go and they start circling, probably what we're talking about is a multi-layered circle around the city. And so, and so now the people are looking. They got all these rings around the city. Um, the seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given. It's a done deal. That, that's that past perfect. He has done it. He's given you the city. The city and all that is, uh, that, that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you do not, uh, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now, there's a lot going on here. Uh, the seventh time around, the police blow the trumpet blast. Joshua said, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city, all that's in it, are to be devoted to the Lord. This is a difficult, difficult, difficult sentence. Because what it means to be devoted to the Lord, that word devoted means consecrated in death. And so what he said, everybody in that city, and it will it'll be very clear later in verse 21, Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys, all killed. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> okay, so a couple things. This is, this is one of the biggest moral dilemmas we have in Scripture. How does God allow, and not just allow, but command... Um, seemingly the killing of innocents. Old people, ah, right, you're old. (laughs) Military people, it's part of war. People die. And a lot of times civilians die in war, not on purpose, but this seems purposeful. One of the greatest dilemmas, moral dilemmas that we find in Scripture. I don't know of another place in Scripture where God told his army to annihilate everybody, including children. There's another place where all the men and women, but not the kids so much. This is a tough one. Um, And I don't care how you try to explain it. Um, It's one of those things that I don't know how you, um, on this side of the story, um, adequately Say, yeah, but it really wasn't that bad. (laughs) Especially after you just told us they might have been for those to repent those seven days. And so it's hard for me to believe that no one did. Yeah. Because they were scared to death. Yeah, they were. (laughs) But how do you kill them all? (laughs) Well, here's the thing fear doesn't lead often, fear is not necessarily the thing that leads people to Jesus. And God knows that. So seven days is enough. We read that in the book of Revelation. That people are so, people who are not Christ followers are so tormented and in pain that God allows during the tribulation over people who are not Christ followers that they say, I wish the mountains would fall on me and die, but they will never bend their knee to the Messiah. Hmm. 
It's going to, it's going to come to fruition in the end times. Uh, and so it's not that, I mean, how many people are devastating sickness and illness and still do not bend their knee to the Savior? Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't allow that to, to, to prod them and, and to make sure that people know that men are without excuse. And God wanted to make sure perhaps in the fulfillment of his plan that they had the full opportunity to repent. And perhaps none of them did, nor ever would. And we can explain it however we want to, but it's a tough thing to wrestle with. Aside from the sovereignty of God, it's a tough thing to wrestle with. The other thing is this. This was the first step into the promised land. The promised land was to be consecrated to God. The first fruits of the land was to be consecrated to God. And so this military campaign was the first fruits of the consecration of the land and the people in it to God. Which involves sacrifice. So, it, it, however you slice it, it, it ain't easy. Um, but I don't think there are, there's no explanation. It's just whatever explanation we come up with, it doesn't sit so well at some point in our understanding. Is that, is that you understand? Yeah. So that's the tough thing about this passage. But here's the good thing about this passage. Only Rahab, what's, what's it say then? The prostitute. The prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Um, this was written long after the account, right? Mm-hmm. Later in verse 25... After they'd taken Jericho, but Joshua spared Rahab, the what? The prostitute with her whole family who belonged to her. Mine says harlot. Uh, yeah, this <laughs> prostitute. I know. Um, this was written well after it all happened, but she's still referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> you didn't have last names? <laughs> there you go. How would you like to be known as Charlotte, the worst of your sin? <laughs> to show God uses the most unusual people that you can think of? I think that's part of it. Former prostitute. What's that? I wish they'd say former prostitute. That would be a little nicer. And we'll get into that in a minute, that, that she couldn't have still been a prostitute and been adopted into the, in, into the Hebrew family. So that we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but they keep referring to her as Rahab the prostitute. Here's what I think. I think because, because Rahab was a prostitute and is in the family line of the Messiah, that she is one of the most profound trophies of grace that we've ever seen. And I think it's to remind us that you might have a prodigal in your past. And, and if the prodigal of your past, if the prostitute of your past is in the line of the family of God, that's just a trophy of grace. Right? Like, if I can clean myself up so much, I no longer have that title, I don't need grace. Grace doesn't look so good. But if I cannot shake the prostitute of my past, shake the prodigal of my past, like, I still carry it. I still feel it. It's still on my mind when I go to bed at night. It's still who I am when I look at that. Like, there's part of me that can't get past that. But yet still... While I was that sinner, Christ died for me. And, and God, knowing that, accepted me in his family. But that just, that makes the trophy of his grace even better. Right? Like if it said, Rahab, the former prostitute, like we wish it would, it wouldn't make God's grace look so good. Because she's, she's a former prostitute. We all got to pass it, no big deal. If it didn't continue to remind us, no, no, she's a prostitute. Well, how good is God that he would 
And if he used a prostitute, so far I've never gotten paid for it. And so maybe I'm not that bad as her, but these. I just think it's a trophy of his, of his grace. It just makes him look really, really, really good. And the fact that he saved me and let me be a pastor makes him look really, really, really good. <laughs> True. But keep away from the vote of things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Now, this sets up two extremes, both of which we see in Scripture. One of the past and one of the current. Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction. We see that in the next chapter with the sin of Achan at Ai. God said, don't keep anything. Jericho was a huge fortified city and they absolutely demolished it. They go up to the smallest of the cities that they'll encounter, Ai, and Achan keeps some of the devoted things, and the entire Israelite community is destroyed in that battle and, and made a fool of. Because the sin of one man had consequence on the entire people. They all suffered because of the sin of one man. And all through the Old Testament, we see that truth. For the sin of the fathers goes on to the third and fourth generation. That whole thing, there's suffering that goes on because of that. And that's one of the things that we see in the Old Testament. Um, but what we also see in the Old Testament is a change of protocol. In Ezekiel verse eight, or chapter 18, Ezekiel 18, verses 19 and 20. That's how you remember it. 18, 19, 20. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Well, in, in Joshua 6, we see that he does. In, in Joshua 7, we see that he does. But now, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The, righteous, uh, the, the, right, the righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. So while there is the precedent in the Old Testament where the one sin is transferred to everyone, later that precedent changes where the one who sins will die and the one who is righteous will be credited righteousness. Amen. And the sin is not transferred on. And the, for the, 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 the next generation does not bear the sin of the former. In the one, you make the case of generational curses or whatever you want to say. And there's a lot of people who camp out on that still today. But like I like to say, if you got a good Bible, <laughs> Ezekiel 18's in it. It says, you no longer bear the burden of sin of those who came before you. No longer will my people say. Or what verses were those? Ezekiel 18, 19, and 20. <coughs> if anybody lives under what they call a generational curse is because they've kept themselves under that because Jesus in his death broke the curse. <clears throat> There's great freedom to be had. Now, if we choose to reject that and live in unrighteousness, we will suffer the consequences. Of it. The Bible's real clear about that. But it's not necessarily imparted to us anymore. It's been imparted to Christ. As a side note, in my very humble biblical opinion, this has profound 
implications for reparations. When our country is dealing with this, how much reparations does a certain people group get for the sins of the fathers generations ago? If you want to be a Christian, biblically, and talk about it, you've got to deal with Ezekiel 18, 19, or 20. Discussion for another day. (laughs) When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Um, They devoted... Uh, the, uh, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. That's the dilemma. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Um, trumpet sounded, wall came down. We talked about in the past one of the ways God could have used to bring the wall down, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw how things like that had happened historically in the past. Could have, could have been the earthquake. No less a miracle. Um. But apparently, and obviously, if we're just smart about this, the entire circumference of the wall didn't all fall down at once. Because Rahab was still in it. (laughs) So she had to get out. But enough points fell down where everybody moved in at certain quadrants around the city where it was overtaken. It wasn't that everybody in the circles just all ran all in at once. So just understand how it went down. Um, Zechariah 4.6. This is why I think God did it this way. Uh, Zechariah 4, 6. Way on the second to the last chapter in the Old Testament. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, military might, nor by power in your own strength, but by my what? Hmm? You know what it says. But by my spirit, says the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's why God did Jericho like God did Jericho. Not by might, nor by power. Not any of your own doing, but by my spirit. And I want to make it clear. That's by my spirit. Not by your doing. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house. I love it. No, she didn't have a name at this point. Go to that prostitute's house. (laughs) And bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. Verse 23. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. See, so they get this Gentile prostitute, and they say, yeah, you can be a part of us, but, and this was God's, the, the, the only things that could be in the camp were the things that had been dedicated and were holy to God. And she and her family were not yet. And so she had to go through the ritually cleansing process outside the camp so that she could be admitted into the family of God. Here's, what I, here, here's, here's how, I, how I understand that. God's grace is profound. Uh, that makes grandmas out of prostitutes. Uh, but it doesn't negate, negate our need for separation and repentance and change. God's grace is profound and accepts us. But there might be some stuff that we got to take outside the camp and change. She didn't remain a prostitute. She was a trophy of God's grace. But there's some stuff that had to change. Just like in our lives. We're a trophy of God's grace. (laughs) But it doesn't negate the need for repentance and change. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron in the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute because he's a trophy of God's grace. And her family and all who belonged to her because she hid them in Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. I think like in her posterity, she continues to, you know, she and her story live with them. Now watch this. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. 
Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up his gates. means when he starts it, his eldest is going to die. And when he finish it, setting up the gates to finish it, his youngest will die. Turn to 1 Kings 16, 34. I don't know if you remember this. I don't fault you if you don't. But we talked about this when we went through the book of 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings 16, 34. Um, in Ahab's time, this is the, uh, the, when, when the nation was split between uh, Israel and Judah, ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. In Ahab's time, um, Ahab was the king of Israel. Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. This is 1 Kings 16.34. Joshua said, let nobody rebuild this. If they do, when they start the work, the eldest is going to die. When they finish it, the youngest is going to die. Generations go by. It's laid in ruins. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid his foundations at the cost of what? His firstborn son, Abram, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua. The great thing about God, Jeremiah one twelve. I am alert and active, God says, watching after my word to perform it. The terrifying thing about God, Jeremiah one twelve. I am alert and active, watching after my word to perform it. Right? And that's why I want to make sure that in the seven days I see the army marching around my city, I'm going to do everything I can to repent and plead for God's mercy and grace. Because by golly, I want God to watch after his word, being careful to perform it for his promises to me that are good. Mm-hmm. And by golly, I want to throw myself on his mercy and grace that he relents in performing his word that speaks of my destruction because of my sin. Right? Let's be on the right side of that equation. <laughs> One last thing. Well, the last verse. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Now, that's going to be tested in the next couple chapters. Because the people told him, we're with you as long as God is with you. But what's going to happen because of chapter 7, when we see in chapter 8, is it's going to look like God ain't with them anymore. Nobody could prepare them for what was going to happen. But let me just wrap up with this. In chapter 6, one of the things that as, as, as a pastoral thing, as I look at chapter 6, I see verses 3, 4, and 5, and verse 10. Um, quit talking and quit planning let the spirit do what this only the spirit can do here's what i know uh and i want to i want to say this with with grace and with understanding and 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 there might need to be some explanation but walls fall down not by talking and not by strategy but by the presence of the spirit of god Um, when we go through things in our lives uh, and walls and difficulties uh, and detriments and tragedy and all this stuff happens in life where we need deliverance, where we need a miracle 
all the talking and all the strategizing isn't going to bring it about. Um, I was just talking to someone today, married someone, uh, who found out the thing that as a married person you never want to find out. And that's all I'll say about it. I have had many of those conversations. And while there is great value in pastoral and Christian counseling, I believe firmly in it, all the talking in the world and all the planning and all the strategizing on how to get through this is not going to amount to a hill of beans without the Spirit of God tearing down walls. And so when we come up against it, when it comes up against us, and our solution is, I need to talk to my therapist, I need to go to counseling, I need to change my behavior, I'm going to make these plans to do different. Those are only good in as much as they lead someone to the Spirit of God. And they open up the life to the Spirit of God to do something significant. Because all the talking, all the therapy, all the counseling, all the strategizing, all the planning is not going to amount to a hill of beans without the Spirit of God breaking down walls. Does that make sense? Now, I believe, I don't believe in therapy, but I believe in Christian counseling, biblical therapy. But those who just go to therapist after therapist after therapist, year after year after year, they're like chiropractors. They just they keep you sick enough to keep you coming back. <laughs> right? Spirit of God don't want to do that. And and so whatever the walls, there's always walls we have in our relationships with people and with family, and whatever the walls. You got to talk to people, talk to people, but at the end of the day, you have to invite the Spirit of God into that thing because that's the only thing that's going to tear down the walls and create life and liberation. And, and, and that, more than anything else, is what I see in chapter six. It wasn't by their talking, it wasn't by their strategy. It was Zechariah 4 6. Not by my number of power, but by my Spirit. Just let my Spirit in. And the walls fall down. So anyway, that's chapter 6. Comments, cries, shouts about rage? No? That's good. Appreciate you guys. That'll preach. I appreciate you guys taking the time to be here and go through this. Studying the Bible is a good thing. All right. Who's going to pray?